Hi, this is Alex Romanovich, and welcome to the Global Edge Talk session on November 20th, COVID Convo with Dr. Wendy. And hello, Dr. Wendy. Hello. And we have a, a guest with Dr. Wendy as well. Her name is Gabby. She is the operations manager for Wendy's team. And we will talk about all kinds of developments that are taking place right now with COVID. Uh, it's been exactly or nearly exactly one year since we have heard and received the news of our initial COVID cases in China and even in Europe. And a lot has happened since that time. As you can imagine, uh, a lot of the information that has been distributed about active cases, about inactive cases, about symptoms, uh, remedies, vaccines, you know, that are you know, supposedly are coming and, and so forth. So this pandemic obviously has changed our entire world as we knew it. And now we want to take a, um, an inventory of what has happened. We have an enormous amount of information that we're, we're gonna be sharing with you and has been shared with us. And Dr. Wendy and Gabby will talk about some of the anecdotes because they're on the front lines of this disease, of this horrible virus, because they are working with elderly, they're working with our seniors in a variety of different ways, in nursing homes, in assisted living facilities, but they're also working with a lot of the caregivers and working with a lot of service providers in this particular predicament. So we will discuss all of these. Now, first order of events and first order of news is the fact that um, a lot of information that has been surrounding COVID is truthful, and some of it, and some of this information is misinformation, and in some cases, outright lies. So, Dr. Wendy, Gabby, please share with us some of the more impact, impactful and commonly held misconceptions and some of the lies, even about COVID, that you know about. Yeah, so, you know, this topic of misinformation is really prevalent. Um, we're seeing misinformation in all walks of life and areas. Um, and um, like you said, we're in a variety of settings. And um, one of the more dangerous pieces of misinformation is that, quote, cases are rising, but death rates are decreasing. Therefore, the deadliness of the virus is overstated or it's decreasing. So this is kind of classic for how misinformation has some credibility because there's actually two statements in what I just shared. The first is that cases are rising, that is true. However, you know, and death rates are decreasing, that is true also. But when you actually like really thought about how this data is captured and also how it's, statistically presented, that is misinformation. And where misinformation has credibility, it's often um, based on something that's true, but it's been distorted. It's been misconceptualized or reorganized so that the conclusion, the actual message is untrue and even dangerous. So yes, cases are rising. Um, death rate. So how do we calculate a death rate? There's, um, you know, the number of deaths divided by the number of cases. Now, 
you know, testing is now much more available than before. So the actual number of cases has been increasing. So when you have a death rate and a large denominator, the bottom number that you divide by is increasing, then it looks like the death rate is decreasing, you know, because it's a proportional, it's a, it's a calculation that's derived by proportions. Um, so what's dangerous is that if you just heard that piece and there was some credibility because, you know, it is true, it's just the way it's presented. Um, and then you heard the second statement, oh, therefore the deadliness of the virus is decreasing and is less deadly than before. That is untrue, but it's also very irresponsible of people who are disseminating this misinformation because then people's actions and behaviors are determined by this misinformation. And then people have a false sense of security, like, oh, you know, I can go out in the community. It's really not that deadly. It's just the flu. That's another common thing we hear. It's just the flu. It's (laughs) just another kind of flu. Um, And, uh, you know, we have some real life situations we can share. Gabby, you could, you know, maybe share one of them we just experienced um, this past week. Yeah, so uh, Wendy and I, came across a gentleman who revealed that he got infected after meeting with his church group um, for a meal. And when we asked him why he chose to take off his mask and in that group of eight people, he said that even though he, he knew how COVID was transmitted, he had heard from a radio show that for men like him in his sixties, the death rate was so low that wearing a mask wasn't necessary. So of the eight people who met Seven of them had symptoms, and of those seven, five tested positive, and two of them chose not to get tested. Um, So only one out of the eight tested negative. Uh, Sadly, the men brought the infection home to their families, and uh, one of the wives tragically passed away from COVID in her 50s. So um, it's one of so many anecdotes that are out there that have ended just as tragically. You know, it's incredible that we hear so many stories like these. And yes, they're easy to dismiss as, well, you know, that's uh, that's just a hearsay. And yet hospitals, private physicians, nursing homes are continuing to um, notify the authorities. They're continuing to, uh, you know, create those type of stats uh, based on real uh, on real data. Uh, so the, the a major source of misinformation, obviously, is social media, uh, is hearsay. It's uh, reports that that um, uh, that may um, uh, you know amplify with hundreds of thousands of um, of recipients. And um, uh, the question, I guess, is: Is independent fact fact checking really working out there? I mean, if you look in if you look at some of the falsehood rates. On Twitter, for example, almost close to 60% of Twitter posts are misinformation, close to 27% with YouTube posts and 25% of Facebook posts are outright lies. Um, How is this misinformation making it all the way through to the masses? And can the social media platforms actually do any more of the fact checking that they're already doing? Uh, how credible are some of these uh, uh, anecdotes, if you will? Um, and you know, they're being they're being uh, distributed to well-educated people, intelligent people 
who are repeating these lies, these outright lies. So what do we do about this? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, fact checkers are pretty limited. They have access to, you know, the same information and the data. And as we've all experienced, COVID is rapidly evolving. The information, the evidence, the data is also we're, you know, growing in terms of our body of knowledge, but we're still really limited. The other thing is that, yes, there are fact checkers that, you know, are hired by Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. However, there's been such a surge in the number of social media posts that fact checkers, you know, are overwhelmed. They can't process all of these, you know, to the level of diligence that probably, you know, is ideal. Um, Just between January and March of this year, the social media posts on these platforms increased by 900%. And so, you know, it's very real that fact checkers um, just are overwhelmed. The other thing is that um, there's a lot of variation between, you know, fact checkers at, um, hey, Facebook or Twitter. What is the standard? We don't know. And maybe there isn't at this point because the, the knowledge is still constantly revolving. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I think... Um, you know, Alex, you and I have been recording this series of podcasts for a while, and I'm a physician, and one would say, you know, pretty credible and expert, quote unquote expert. I work in home care, elder care. However, you know, we find that there are still people, um, you know, the story that Gabby just uh, illustrated um, that we came across, this gentleman she and I had spoken to before, and he was part of, you know, a group that we sent communications about COVID. And he had heard all this intelligence, as he said, well-educated people. However, there were still sources that, you know, for him overrode even somebody, you know, with my background sending the communication. Um, Gabby and I have just kind of thought about like, where is it that the communication isn't reaching people? Um, I don't know if part of it may be actually that because I'm a physician and I'm an employer and I'm I'm seen as an authority figure and maybe that detracts from my messaging. I don't know. So, um, you know, we're actually um, asking the people in our groups, in our company, in our community to share their very personal and very real stories about COVID to make it relatable. So I really think that the conversation has to be out there in the community um, so that um, just the volume of it, like being personable, relatable, um, can actually, you know, overcome the the amount of misinformation out there when it becomes real and people take action because it's personable. Yeah, I'm 27, so I fall into an age group that's gained a lot of notoriety during the pandemic for disregarding quarantine um, or really twisting what quarantine means and um, social distancing and, and face mask wearing. Um, so I feel a little bit like an outlier because I do work with seniors and I've been extremely vigilant to their concerns and welfare, especially since early March when I first heard of COVID. Um, and then to Wendy's point, it's just, it's not just leaving it up to our politicians doc- and doctors and experts to, uh, to talk about COVID. It's like, yes, please listen to them. And it's important for us to all join in the conversation. So everyone does know how serious it is, how close to home it is. And 
how it does affect our entire community, you know, our friends, family, neighbors, kids, food preparers. Um, and so last night I was watching a video post from a social media campaign that the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, had created called Share Your COVID-19 Experience. So I clicked on it and I watched a 19-year-old woman share her experience and it was really powerful. Um, she admitted to even denying that she had COVID-19 despite experiencing symptoms until one day she woke up and felt like she couldn't breathe. So I give her a lot of credit for speaking up too, because it seems that there is a stigma amongst those who test positive and it is important that we listen to them with grace. So uh, I invite everyone who listens to this podcast to share their personal experience of how COVID-19 has affected their lives and the lives of those that they love. Um, people need to listen to those working on the front lines against COVID, the ones who see it every day and realize how easily it turns into a community issue. Um, I mean, all of these stories are very disturbing, obviously. And then when you have a president in the task force um, suggesting that, look, I had it, you may have had it, other people have it, you know, minor symptoms, no big deal. It may go away. Eventually we'll have the, uh, you know, we'll have the, the immunity. Look, vaccine is coming. It should be all okay, right? Uh, but what about the elderly? What about those folks who are not coping or who cannot cope with this virus, for whom it's not going to be okay? Um, what can the community do in this particular case? Can the community really... Uh, do something about this? And does the community even care? I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about the entire United States of America. You know, that's that's a little bit too much to handle in terms of, uh, you know, uh, tracking every, every, every aspect of it. But a local community, you in Denver, myself in New York City, and many other communities out there, what can a particular community do to at least attempt to concentrate on the truth and somehow, uh, you know, manage this misinformation and, and keep it at bay and, and make sure that people continue to practice safety, continue to practice, um, you know, safe, uh, you know, safe living and safe communications. Yeah, you know, you started off um, with how is this impacting our, our elderly, our seniors, you know, right now, Hospitals across the nation are at capacity. They're full. What we're seeing in our work, you know, even this morning we got a call um, from a family, but we're seeing that seniors who should be in the hospital are being discharged or turned away from the hospitals and going, you know, and are out in the community and, you know, bad outcomes um, arise when uh, seniors who are frail are discharged, um, you know, and, um, denied the care that they actually need. Um, our call today was uh, of a 92-year-old gentleman. He did test, you know, uh, COVID positive. Um, he's on quarantine. His family, his five children are taking care of them while he's in quarantine. You know, um, we're, we also have to like protect our team members and, you know, figure out like, you know, that they have to complete the quarantine period before we let our people in to, to take care of him. 
However, this is a 92-year-old. If there were more adequate resources, he should be in the hospital. He shouldn't be, you know, sent out, you know, back to his family. And the family are struggling, too. Fortunately, he has five children. Um, last week, we had an elderly um, gentleman who had um, uh, an infection called Clostridium difficile. It causes um, explosive diarrhea. And he was also discharged home early, um, which means that, you know, um, he also didn't have like quite, you know, the support system that being in the hospital, you know, could provide him. Before COVID, he would not have been sent out this early. He would have at least stayed in the hospital another three days before he you know, tested negative for Clostridium difficile in his stool before being let out in the community. But he's let out into the community with this active bowel infection. It's not COVID, but it's C. diff, and he could transmit it very easily to the rest of his community. So we're seeing all these things, and there is a cascading effect, and we're all in this together. Um, so what we're seeing is really um, either people are denied care that they can't, you know, have access to health care that they can because our resources are swamped or they're being let out into the hospital, uh, out of the hospital system, into the community where they are danger to themselves, at risk for themselves or even endangering other people, too. Um, you know, you know, what's really sad about this as well is that we have no idea. You as a physician may have some idea, but people within the community, you know, regular citizens may not have any idea whatsoever what the long-term uh, effects may be of COVID-19. I um, uh, have a friend, a partner of many years who has had COVID just like I did. And uh, my symptoms were mild. His symptoms were not as mild. And he spent two weeks in the hospital. And then uh, that was about two, three months ago, or even even uh, uh, earlier. And um, he told me a couple of days ago that he was diagnosed with cancer. He was diagnosed with lymphoma. Now, I have no idea. He has no idea. His doctors have no idea whether this lymphoma was somehow caused by COVID. All we do know is that his immune system was completely shot when he was in the hospital. And now his immune system is going to be even more shot because he's going to have to go through chemotherapy and so forth and so on. So we have no idea. And I don't think even you, Dr. Wendy, can predict or say what this disease, this horrible virus can cause in the long term. But all we know is that some, a lot of these cases will surface, you know, six months down the line, year down the line and so forth. And we will. We may not know um, what what the cause may be. We can we can only guess. I guess we can only guess. We don't know what the long term complications are. We haven't had any long term, you know, data to even predict accurately. It's only been, like you said, a year. You know, so there's no long term data. There's no pandemic. There's nothing. There's been no viral infection like this before, um, and. You know, even for people like you who've had the infection and survived it, we don't know if you could be reinfected or the antibodies that you developed, how long those will last in your system, or even if those antibodies, even if they last a long time, if the virus mutates and the immunity you got from the 2020 COVID-19 will protect you from the 2021 strain of the virus if it mutates. I totally agree. And, you know, all we're asking our citizens to do 
all the government is asking in, in many cases. Some governments, some state and local governments are not as strict as, for example, we are in New York State, in New York City, uh, where you know mandatory quarantines are mandated, isolation is mandated, schools are now closed again. Um, and um, these are the measures that, even though they're disruptive, I believe they are also very prescriptive and, and, and you know, there for the safety of our citizens. So, um, look, I want to thank you for, um, for this wonderful podcast. Let's continue to stay close and communicate through this second wave, or some people even call it a third wave, uh, of the pandemic. I think it's going to be, unfortunately, it's going to be with us for quite some time, even with the vaccine. Uh, today actually was the day um, or is the day uh, where Pfizer is now submitting their emergency um, approval uh, case to the FDA folks. And we're hoping that it's going to be approved. And with the, um, you know, with the availability of vaccine, we'll see what happens next. It's, it's all very, very, very unpredictable. And the best thing we can do is to be, you know, to be safe. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you.